One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Recently, over at History Hit TV, the world's best history channel, Dr. Elena Yaniga is smashing all of our records with her new series on medieval lives. Everybody loves Elena Yaniga. The new series looks at what life was like for actual people in the medieval period, and she does it with her own particular style. That has made her the platform's favourite documentary maker of the moment. I am absolutely thrilled about that. And I'm particularly thrilled, therefore, on this podcast to say that we are going to play an interview that I did with Eleanor last year on YouTube. It was part of our series of History Hit Lives on Timeline, our partner channel on YouTube. And we talked about some of this same material. We talked about the reality of life at medieval Britain, but across Europe as well. And naturally, she slayed, slayed some of the myths that we all have about the medieval world. If you want to listen to this, then go and check out Eleanor on History Hit TV. You can do so. Just sign up to historyhit.tv. You can uh, check them out. I spent the weekend herring across England on the footsteps of the great heathen army with another medieval specialist, Dr. Kat Jarman. She's an early medieval Viking specialist. And she took me from East Anglia all the way into the heart of Wessex on the footsteps of that great heathen army, which in the ninth century toppled one kingdom after another, marched into the heart of Wessex, where it was defeated by Alfred at a battlefield that we're not sure exactly where it is, frustratingly. But, you know, watch this space. We've got a few projects in the works at History Hit. We might be making some discoveries in that department. Thank you again to everyone who subscribes to History Hit TV, Eleni Anika's series, uh, My Journey with Cat. None of that would take place if it wasn't for you subscribing. Thank you. I know I say that a lot and I mean it. It is just so, so awesome and I can't really believe it's all happening. So go ahead and subscribe to historyit.tv. But in the meantime, enjoy this conversation with the very brilliant Dr. Eleanor Yaniger. Eleanor, thank you for coming back on. Hey, thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure. Well, it's a huge pleasure talking to you, uh, the most awesome medieval historian in the world. Can I ask you a question? Yep. I saw on Twitter the other day, you, you got very upset, and I just want to trigger you. Tell me how it makes you feel when people use the word medieval as a pejorative term. Oh, that's such a medieval thing. Oh, God. Okay, so this is a literal uh, red flag to a bull stuff for me. It's it, to the point where uh, people, you know, uh, fans of my work and my friends will go find articles where people misuse the term medieval or dark ages and send it to me just to wind me up because it's extraordinarily effective. Um, and so for me, it's one of these frustrating things because in the first place, misusing the term medieval is historically inaccurate, right? So when people say that something is medieval, what they mean is, oh, it's bad. 
And usually when they're doing that, they're describing something that is not medieval. Like, you know, it'll be one of these things where I've seen, for example, people say that uh, the reaction to COVID in America is very medieval um, because they say that it's, uh, they think that medieval responses to uh, plague are um, really kind of uh, just based on um, ideas about God or um, they are looking to magic to cure things. And it's like, none of that's true. Uh, you know, medieval responses to play, they're like, oh, this is a contagious disease. Um, this is really terrible. We should try to like spread, like stop the spread of disease. And, you know, and there are some kind of like religious ways of looking at it where people will say, oh, um, Christians, for example, will say, oh, this is um, a punishment from God for our sinfulness. So there is that, but they're really clear on the fact that this is a disease and it's something that's happening that way. Um, Muslims, on the other hand, also think that it's a contagious disease and they'll say, oh, this is a plague sent by God that has to kind of like be endured and suffered as a form of martyrdom that we have to get through. So it's like both of those are like, no, this is a disease. This is bad. Like, oh, man, I guess a bunch of people are going to die. Whereas like, you know, the kind of debate in America about the pandemic is like, will Jesus save you whether or not you wear a mask? And it's, you know, it's like two completely different things. Um, and combined with this is like a frustration about the misuse of the term dark ages more specifically, because people will say, oh, oh, the dark ages. And what they mean by that is they mean the medieval period. Uh, and dark ages does not mean the medieval period. It means specifically the early medieval period. And when they say the dark ages, they'll say, oh, um, you know, because that was a time when people rejected the scientific knowledge of Rome. And like, that's just completely untrue. The term dark ages actually refers to a lack of sources. So it's just a time we don't have a lot of things that um, came through to us. You know, like one of the big things that historians always struggle against is having something to read and then interpret. Um, and we don't have a lot of stuff from the dark ages. And that's what we mean by it. But people have interpreted that to mean like bad or pejorative or stupid. And like, that's just not the case. You would struggle to find a bigger group of fanboys about, you know, the Roman Empire, or the Roman uh, knowledge than medieval people who saw themselves as like the new iteration of Rome. They saw themselves as really tied to the legacy of Rome. And, you know, there's no way on God's green earth that like given some sort of like Roman knowledge, they would reject that. So, you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, it's not a great thing to do it. And, you know, also one of the reasons why I think it's not a great thing to do it beyond, you know, pedantry, which I love, um, is that it's not a great thing to do because it sort of lets us off the hook for our own mistakes. When we talk about something that is bad and we call it medieval and it's something that we're doing, it kind of like puts it at arm's length. You know, a lot of the things that we're experiencing right now that are negative are like a, a result of our own kind of society and the way that we relate to things. Medieval people would never react the same way. So we need to own those things or we can't fix them. If you're constantly blaming someone in the past for how something is, then it kind of lets you off the hook and makes you not culpable. So I reject, I reject medieval as a pejorative and I'm regularly wound up by it. So, you know, if we want to actually get better, we need to actually figure out what the Middle Ages deal is and we need to kind of like move forward. So that's okay. my pat rant. Everybody needs to check out Eleanor on Twitter because she'll give you that rant about three times a day, which is great. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's super fresh, you know, super fresh each lunch. time. Check in at lunch. I'm probably, you know, doing it. It's fine. Now, let's, let's, let's say how, we're going to talk about how you get ahead, how you get ahead in, in the medieval world. And you know, I've been discussing, so you want to talk about, first about buildings and churches. When a lot of us think of medieval, we do think about it's funny because you know we think of, as you say it's like a it's a it's a it's a pejorative term medieval and and a, it's a primitive term and yet we also go and yet it gave us some of the most extraordinary buildings on planet Earth 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's talk about those buildings now. Why, why do people build them? Well, I mean, one of the great things about uh, when we're talking about influence in architecture from the medieval period is that the buildings that exist are you that still exist are usually the ones that were built specifically to make you feel a certain way. Right. So the ones that we still have left over are like castles and churches and cathedrals. Um, And they're all built with this very explicit kind of uh, power dynamic in mind. So wonderful uh, castles like we see here. This is the uh, Escorial. Um, in Spain. And this is astonishing, isn't it? It's absolutely astonishing. And it's serving a number of different functions. So in the first place, you know, we will look at that now and we'll be like, I am very impressed by this building, you know. And if you think about a world where buildings are much smaller, where skyscrapers don't exist, you know, your average uh, building is like maybe three stories tall max, you know, you see something like that and you're massively taken aback. So it's a very specific statement about like the power of the royal family in Spain and what they do there other than just having like this great big building which it's really easy to read that and interpret that one of the things that they have there is basically it's called a pantheon uh, where they bury all of their dead kings so that you can kind of be aware of like how the dynasty works contemplate um, the concept of uh, the king's two bodies. I'm not sure if you're aware of this theory. This is like this idea that um, kings and queens, they have sort of two bodies. There's their actual physical body that dies and will get buried uh, in uh, Pantheon. But there's also like the concept of the body of the king. This is why we say stuff like the king is dead, long live the king. Because while their body might die, the concept continues to live on. And so that's what happens when you kind of put a bunch of bodies in a row when you say, think about this. Also in the Escorial, they've got lots and lots of relics of all of like the famous Spanish saints and that sort of a thing. So they're making an explicit connection about keeping holy relics in a place, keeping royal bodies in a place and saying, okay, saintly figures and royal figures, they're on sort of the same level. They've all got a sort of power and it's something that you should be looking up to. So when we see huge medieval buildings like that, it's never neutral. It's never like, oh, well, I just thought I would build a nice castle and it would be pretty. You know, it's if people just wanted a big house, they could build a big house. But you build something beautiful and massive like that in order to prove something. And it, well, like a case in point here is this wonderful French palace um, in Villeneuve-les-Avignon. Um, and it is across the river from Avignon itself um, in what is now Southern France. Um, and it was bought, bought, built in the 14th century. And that's when the papacy was in Avignon. Uh, So the papacy had left Rome because Rome was extraordinarily violent Um, in the late 14th century. There were a number of rebellions um, and the popes were like, look, we've got to get out of here because there's too many wars going on. Um, So they move over to Avignon and they build this extraordinarily huge papal palace. And it's absolutely beautiful. And it's doing the same thing as, you know, the Escorialis. It's like, oh, you should be very impressed by the papacy. Look at their huge castle. But they're right across the river from the territory of the French king. And the French king is like, look, you're not the only person who is important. And you're not the only kid on the block here. So what he does is build his own huge, massive castle directly across the river. And it's sort of like a castle standoff. So what it's showing everyone is that there isn't just like one form of power. There's like royal power in Villeneuve-Lavignon. And then there's papal power across the river. And the castles are kind of in a standoff of saying, these are two important types of power. I'm important. I'm important. Don't forget about me. So it makes a really clear statement about who owns what territory, how power is distributed. 
And it just kind of reminds all regular people about who's in control. You know, these buildings are just so extraordinary. But what about what's going on inside them, the religious experiences, the relics? Because the relics are, are okay. And I guess it's where we talk about, do we talk about pilgrimage here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, relics are one of these things where they're really interesting in the medieval context because they were so incredibly important. So relics are um, basically, the long and short of it is that they're items that can be connected to holy people. So in the cases of saints, it's usually body parts. And there's something like 12 of them extant around Europe where people will be like wanting to pray to something that was a part of Jesus's body. Or you will have um, the relics of his passion. So the crown of thorns is a really big deal. Uh, The spear that supposedly uh, pierced his side. You'll go look for things like that. Anything that touched Jesus. And people are so into the idea of relics. It's like they're thought to have healing properties. They are thought to give you a connection to God. And so you'll go on pilgrimage to go see these things. So you will go to Tewkesbury and see what relics they have there. And if people have relics, they do a big job of like trying to make sure that everybody knows that they have them. So, you know, they will oftentimes um, write books saying, oh, well, we've got, we've got these relics here and kind of try to circulate those. They will, for example, try to popularize sermons about the saints that they have um, so that people can say, oh, I, I've heard of this saint. I would like to go see that. And so somewhere like Tewksbury has got a really, you know, great collection of relics and people will come from all over to just kind of like touch them, commune to them, uh, pray with people in them. And it gives you a kind of repository that's fitting for something that is so extremely precious and so extremely holy. Can we talk a little bit more about castles? Mm-hmm. Um, when you read a book about castles, you end up, for me, I end up knowing less about castles at the end of reading a book about castles than I did at the beginning, right? Um, they, are they, are they defensive? Are they palatial? Are they domestic? Like, why do people build castles? I mean, uh, the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> so they're, they, they're doing a lot of things and they do a lot of heavy lifting, which is why they're so uh, confusing and complex, because they are defensive. But also, you know, within that, you have to understand that a lot of things in the medieval period are generally defensive, like cities are defensive. All cities are behind, you know, a a wall. Um, You will have examples of um, even cathedrals that are defensive. Like here in England, uh, the Lincoln Cathedral has a uh, defensible facade uh, where you can actually attack people from inside of it, which is amazing. Um, so there are a lot of things are defended. So, of course, though, kings are going to want to protect themselves. Right. So you put yourself behind a wall. And in fact, that's what castle sort of means. Um, a, a castle has to be uh, defensible. Otherwise, even if it's a set seat of royal power, it's just a palace. So, you know, castles are palatial and castles definitely are something often that is really rich and luxurious, but not always. Like sometimes you'll see castles, especially if they're um, super old, like from the early medieval period, um, especially here, you'll see Mott and Bailey castles and where they are, um, you know, on a mott, which is basically a big hill that is uh, dug up and built. Um, And then they put just um, a little round guy at the top, which is a defensive wall. And then you'll sort of inside that have a number of buildings where everyone lives. And they're not particularly fancy. You know, no one is like, oh, I really hope someday to live in one of the buildings inside that wall. You know, that that doesn't have the same sort of cachet as something like, for example, the Castle Villeneuve-Le-Avignon has. 
Um, here in England, if you have the opportunity, a really great opportunity to see a cool medieval castle um, is down in Dover. And the castle there, they've done a really good job of reconstructing it so it actually looked like it would have in medieval times. Because a lot of the time now when we see castles, you know, it's just a bunch of gray stone. It's kind of fallen apart. You really have to use your imagination to understand what it would have looked like. And you mostly just see defensive walls. What they've done there is they've replastered the inside. So all medieval castles would have been uh, all plastered inside. And they're usually very brightly painted. Um, so we've got a lot of great records for this, you know, where they're yellow or red or all these beautiful things inside. And which is, again, showing you how uh, powerful and rich uh, kings are. They're like, oh, well, I've got luxurious tapestries and I have bright red walls and I have, you know, carpets on the and all of these sort of things. And we lose that because plaster falls off walls over time, right? So when we look at castles, we go, oh, it's very dark and it's very dank. That's not what they were like. So it's important to kind of like, you've got to do your own sort of like a grand designs imagining of castles when you see them. You know, they were painted, they were bright, they were, you know, lit up, they were full of candles. They're not just a dark, dank thing like we see now. You're listening Dan Snow's History. This is a conversation I had on YouTube last year with Dr. Eleanor Yanniger. More coming up after this. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanniger. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Um, well, this is, by, I, this is, by the way, 
excellent TV series made featuring Dover Castle by D. Snow. Check it out. Called Battle Castle. I hated the title, but it's called Battle Castle. Anyway, and uh, Bodium Castle, which is a kind of case in point, right? Because it looks like the perfect castle. It was it was military. It sucks, right? There's windows. I mean, it was a kind of posh, stately home built mm-hmm. to look like a castle. It was you wouldn't want to try and defend this in, in battle, would you? In a yeah. It's it is one of my favorites. So I absolutely love Bodleian Castle just because it's so pretty. <laughs> like that's a, that's the sort of place that I take visitors when I go they come on holiday. Like oh, you've got to see this one. But yeah, it would yeah. be it's a nonsense. There's no way to defend that. You know, it's a nonsense. Put that on the tourist brochure. Um, uh, Lester, can I talk about something we don't um, think of? Again, this idea you, you point out the medieval world would have been colourful, the buildings would have been far more colourful, dynamic. Let's also talk about uh, like plays and, and, and charivaries and feast days. It, there would have been some fun. Oh yeah, and these are this is one of the things that's actually cool when we think about uh, big monumental buildings because they're often the site of a lot of fun. So you know, cathedrals, for example, which you know they're very solemn. Uh, places, but they're also um, home on feast days to things like mystery plays. And mystery plays are plays, you know, as it says right there in the title, uh, and they'll be on biblical themes. And they're usually something that you'll do for like big feast days like Michaelmas or Christmas or Easter. And they are such a huge deal. Everyone absolutely loves them. And initially they start out being performed in cathedrals and priests will sort of act out the roles. Um, and then it turns out that priests are having way too much fun. Everyone's having too much fun having the big mystery play in the cathedral. And the church sort of steps in in the 12th century and they're like, look, are you a priest or are you an actor? You need to like dial down the fun. Everyone's having way too much fun in here. And they're like, oh, all right. So then the mystery plays get taken out in front of the cathedral, out into the main square. And you'll have like town guilds will be the people who put it on or even there'll be like roving troops of actors. And people absolutely love these. You know, like there'll be a whole cycle that gets done all year where they kind of like start out with one and they kind of move through the entire Bible over the year. And everyone loves going to these. There's like big dances. Um, you know, they will do kind of like fire shows. There's acrobats. They'll be like... Um, big competitions about like how you'll make the sets and people really get excited, for example, about like hell mouths. So a hell mouth is something that you'll see a lot of time in paintings where there'll be like a big demon and it's his mouth. And that's how you can tell people are going into hell. And there'll be a, a lot of excitement about like, oh, they've got this exciting hell mouth. They've got all these like great uh, sets and people get really jazzed for that. You know, it's kind of like the medieval equivalent of going to a horror movie. Like that's, you know, like something that people, people still kind of like, like that. They like the, the, you know, being a little bit scared and they like to, like, they party a lot. I mean, every day is a feast day. It's like absolutely incredible. You go, I'm like, oh, well, this will happen on big feast days. I have to say big feast days because there's so many feast days. It's like, you know, basically you've got like three or four saints days a month that you could choose to celebrate depending. You know, there are bigger ones like Michaelmas is the huge one, which is uh, Michael the Archangel's uh, feast day. That's like a, a really big deal. But they're constantly having parties and being like, oh, well, I guess it's time again. You know, um, Christmas is 12 days long in the medieval period. It's not one day. They're like, we need to we need to string this out. You know, you got from Christmas through till Twelfth Night and that's just one party. So, you know, medieval people are using these buildings to have a good time. So the next time that I'm involved in a particularly uh, hedonistic bacchanal, like I'm really, I'm in a beef there, I'm having a great time, I'm watching the sun go down, I'm going to be like, oh, it's so medieval around here. 
I mean, honestly. Um, and then I will think <laughs> of you. Yes, yes. So it's like the minute that you're having a really good time, like drinking some really great beer with a bunch of people in the sunshine, that is indeed medieval. That's perfect. Yeah, just we're behaving like people from medieval times. Um, okay, so okay, let me. So this is how we're, we're talking about how we uh, get ahead in the medieval world. You build huge castles. Of course, we should say the medieval period we're, we're talking about here. Really, we've, you've already brought in the name. They're in the Near East. This is a pan-European kind of, obviously a period, but a kind of cultural, religious, architectural movement as well. And actually, we should probably talk about that a little bit now. Let's talk about kind of um, travel visits. The church and the aristocracy and royals would have been pretty mobile. They would have been travelers, right? Mm, Yeah, it's a lot of the time in the first place, travel is kind of like a stated goal in the medieval period. Like that's something that it proves that you're kind of fancy, that you're worldly. Everyone in the medieval period wants to go on pilgrimage at least one point in their life. The big point of pilgrimage, like as high as you can possibly get, is to make it to Jerusalem. And that's what everybody wants to do. Um, Everyone is absolutely sold on that. Um, And there is a lot of exchange, especially from the Near East back and forth. Sometimes there's exchange as far as the Far East. You know, you have people like uh, Marco Polo uh, makes it all the way to China. Um, and we do know that like there will be Far Eastern goods. Uh, we know, for example, a lot of spices that come from Indonesia end up uh, in, in medieval Europe. So there is a lot of trade back and forth. And, you know, I'm guilty myself because I'm a Europeanist, right? I work on Europe. And we can sometimes when we use, say medieval, we think, uh, oh, we're just mean Europe. But medieval people don't think like that. Medieval Europeans, the way they see their world um, is that the center of it is Jerusalem and they're off at the edges. And so, like, everything is actually kind of centered on the Mediterranean, which is what the Mediterranean means, right? It means, like, between countries. Um, And so that's sort of like the center of the world, and that's where everybody wants to go. Um, And one of the things that you'll do is you'll have these big parades, and it's a way of showing power. So um, one of my favorite monarchs, so, like, let's transition into talking about Czech people, which, you know, like, I I lasted this long, so it's pretty good. Jeez, that was, I mean, that was, like, (laughs) 25 minutes. That's a, a record. I know, like the restraint, you know, Uh, but one of my favorite emperors, uh, Charles IV, um, he was originally the uh, king of Bohemia. He's of Czech extraction, but he becomes the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, And here he is uh, being very, very holy in front of his relics. And one of his big things is he travels an absolute ton because in the 14th century, like the sort of centralized power of the Holy Roman Empire is is sort of crumbling a little bit. Um, There isn't as much of an idea of the emperor controlling particular territory. So one of the things that Charles does is he's super itinerant and he just starts like showing up places. Like he's in Milan saying, hi guys, remember how I own this? You know, he's in Lombardy. He goes up to the North Coast and he's like in Pomerania. Like he goes everywhere and is like, hey, what's up? Charles IV, nice to see you. Uh, and he just is, and when he's doing that, it's not just like, oh, you know, he's having a nice holiday. He's making a specific statement about the fact that he's the emperor and he controls these lands. You you never know. The emperor might just show up, right, and check your homework. So what he's saying is that this is still something that I control. And while he's doing that, one of the things that he does is, you know, you stay with other rich people when you're rich people. And so he's showing up at the castles of other nobles or sometimes at the castles of other kings. He's related to the French court, for example. And they'll say, oh, Charles, it's so nice to have you here. And he's like, yeah, it's great to be here. And he'll be like, "Mm, I heard you have some really nice relics. And they'll be like, yes, Charles, we have some nice relics. Would you like to see them? And he'll say, oh, I would love to see your relics. And they'll be like, 
oh, Charles, can I offer you this relic? Is that something that you would like? And he'll say, oh, for me? I am not sure that I am worthy to receive this relic. Let's pray. Oh, yes, thank you. I'm taking that back to Prague. And in this way, he had like built up a collection of absolutely hundreds of relics and he takes them all to Prague and he's doing it because what he's trying to say is like, oh, Prague's this really fancy place. Prague's this super holy place. You want to see relics? You want to go on pilgrimage somewhere? Why not come to Prague where I live, where my fancy castle is and where my new cathedral is and see my fantastic collection of relics. So when he travels, he's not just showing his power and saying, okay, well, this is how you know that I'm an important emperor. He's also collecting things that then make him more powerful. So it's just like an ultimate boss move. Um, and uh, everything the man did was just incredibly calculated. He was very, very smart um, and, you know, maybe kind of a jerk about it, but, you know, I like to see the collection. So I'm, I'm like Team Charles. <laughs> so, so we've got men, men like Charles collecting relics. Who was it? Uh, if I misremember, was it Henry of Navarre, Henry IV of France? Somebody said, you rule with your ass in your saddle and your sword in your hand. Mm-hmm. Yes, you got it in one. And it's, oh, is that Henry? Okay. Yeah, I, I, I believe it is. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it's about the exercise of military power, because that's one of the things that sort of differentiates kings from popes, right? So there is still, which, you know, would seem obvious to us, but the thing is, Kings are kind of ruling by divine right, right? The idea that the reason that they are king is that God put them there. So there is a holy connection between royalty. Um, it, it's not just, you know, something for the church. It's, you know, like here in England, technically the queen's the head of the church, right? Uh, we don't think about it a lot, but it's true. So there is this thing about the fact that uh, kings are holy, but what differentiates them from church leaders is that they do wars, Right. So um, like popes can't do wars because the minute that you enter uh, the clergy, you have to take an oath that says you won't shed blood. Um, there are some great uh, instances where, for example, there's a Bishop Odo during uh, the Norman conquest of England who gets around this by using a mace in battle <laughs> instead of a sword. And he's like, well, I'm not drawing blood. I'm just, you know, kind of bludgeoning people to death. You know, all the blood's internal. So it's fine. Um, but there are also there are kind of a back and forth with this, right? So it's like for a king, in order to prove their power, one of their power is often violent and military. And funnily enough, that's actually how you get the office of Holy Roman Emperor, is that there's a lot of back and forth about this. But the idea is sort of that if the Pope is uh, God's representative for the church, the emperor is God's representative for the empire. And what they're kind of acting as is like the military wing of the church. So as if you asked a pope, they'd say, oh, yeah, emperors exist because um, I can't fight a war. If something goes wrong, I need someone to, like, go into battle. I need someone to raise an army. And that's what emperors are supposed to be doing. So, for example, when uh, popes want to raise a crusade, one of the groups of people that they will lean on really heavily are emperors. They'll be like, you, you get out of there. Get out of your castle. I see you're hanging out in Sicily, having a nice time on your horse. Let's go. You know, and they will, then they'll just kind of like try to mobilize that. But it is also a constant back and forth where kings are always trying to attack each other and take each other's lands. I mean, I don't know if you heard about the rivalry between England and France and a little war that went for about 100 years or so. Uh, but there is a lot of establishing, you know, who owns this land? How do you um, rule it? And a lot of the time it's just military. And that's just the long and short of it. Okay, Anna. So I want to talk about this idea that the medieval world was particularly violent, brutal, and sort of full of torture. 
Uh, even though we've managed to just come through the 20th century, which was an exhibition in unimaginable violence. Is it true? Well, then, I mean, the Georgians had public torture and execution the whole time, right? So again, why this connection with the medieval world for so many people? Yeah, it's a really interesting one because uh, on the one hand, yeah, like medi- like, like, tor- like public torture and execution is certainly something that happened in the medieval period. And I'm not here to say that it isn't. But on the other hand, it's something that modern people did a lot as well. And in fact, a lot of the time when we talk about historical torture, this line will become really blurred and people will say, oh, look, look at all these medieval torture devices. And, you know, I'm like, well, actually, that's from the 17th century. You know, this is actually a very modern torture device. It's not something that medieval people did. Um, And the thing of it is, is that it's kind of also part of how we remember history, right? Because we've got uh, examples like William Wallace, where that was a terrible public execution and torture. But the thing is, he was a super high profile dude, you know, and he engaged in, you know, a longstanding war against the crown. And one of the fastest ways to get in trouble is to threaten the crown, you know. So he's being made a specific example of you're supposed to be like, oh, my, this is the most terrible thing I've ever seen. I can't believe this. And it's a story. Right. And that's a story that will get spread and it's something that will get written down. So every time there's a public execution, we usually have records of that. Like, we'll have a record of it's like, oh, well, that one was particularly gruesome, you know. But there's also a lot of different kinds of uh, punishment in the medieval period. And actually, a lot of the time, they'll be a lot more chill than they are in the modern period. Like, there's a big, for example, um, a focus on medieval punishments that will be about bringing people back into the community. So it'll be a lot less about, like, punishing them physically or something. But they'll say, look, you've got to pay a fine. They got to go apologize to the person that you wronged over there. Like, sometimes if they're a high-profile um you know, men fighting each other, the sentence for their crime, even if they've killed people, they'll be like, you two have to go on pilgrimage together and you need to make friends and you need to stop this because this is tearing the community apart. You need to find a way to make a bond. And we ignore that because it doesn't feed into what we're interested in. You know, in the first place, we kind of like the macabre, gruesome thing. And we're like, ooh, that's really gross. Tell me more. You know, like I'm guilty of that. You know, I'm always interested in those things. But also, again, it's a way of just saying, okay, well, the medieval period was bad. We in the modern period are not bad. Um, And it's simply not true. You see just as much uh, torture and killing in punishment in the modern period, if not more so in a lot of ways. And actually, uh, torture really ramps up in the early modern period. It was not quite as always a thing that happens in the medieval period. But we're looking, we're picking and choosing. Because we're picking and choosing who it is worth writing about and what's worth writing about. And we write about exceptions. We don't write about what everyday punishment is. You know, no one is interested in reading, oh, yeah, and then you were fined six gold florins for stealing a sheep. You know, what they want to see is like, oh, you got killed for stealing a sheep. You know, that's the one that we remember. So there, it's a lot of, of sources. And it is kind of something that we've made up to tell ourselves that we're better than medieval people because we love doing that. So, Eleanor, thank you very much. We're extremely grateful. Thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure to be here. Um, and I love to come and talk about my favorite things. Hi, everyone. Thanks for reaching the end of this podcast. Most of you are probably asleep, so I'm talking to your snoring forms. But anyone who's awake, it would be great if you could do me a quick favor. Head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate it five stars, and then leave a nice glowing review. It makes a huge difference for some reason to how these podcasts do. Madness, I know, but them's the rules. Then we go further up the charts, more people listen to us, and everything will be awesome. So thank you so much.
Now sleep well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.